1: at Let It Roll Cast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com Today, we feature another Let It Roll seance in which Nate discusses the late Henry Pleasant's Agony of Modern Music from 1955, in which the great critic disavowed the state of classical music at the time and advocates for the primacy of jazz as the great music of the era. Email us at letitrollpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we don't have a guest. But we have the memory of Henry Pleasants, and we're going to be discussing his book, The Agony of Modern Music. This is part of our seance series, wherein I discuss the work of authors that are either passed away and therefore unreachable, or who are just unreachable, and I can't get to, and I want to discuss their work anyway. But we're starting off, there's plenty, plenty, plenty of dead authors who've influenced my thinking, and Henry Pleasance is one that I discovered in the course of the Let It Roll project and thought that this work was particularly interesting and would be apropos for the series. First off, I want to introduce who Henry Pleasance was. He was a music critic who lived from 1910 to 2000. He was... Um, I'll just summarize the Wiki- – I'll read the Wikipedia entry about this book. Pleasant's most famous and controversial work was his 1955 publication The Agony of Modern Music – a polemical attack on the direction taken by much of 20th century classical music and an argument in favor of jazz as the true master music of the era. The book stated, quote, serious music is a dead art. The vein, which for 300 years offered a seemingly inexhaustible yield of beautiful music has run out. What we know as modern music is the noise made by diluted speculators picking through its slag pile. And that's pretty much that harsh. That's uh And one of the fascinating ironies to me is this book was written in 1955, a point in time when jazz still had a very dominant hold on popular music, but not as much as it had in the 1940s or the 1930s. To me, the apotheosis of jazz as popular music was the swing era from the 30s to 40s uh, when artists like Duke Ellington uh, all the way through Louis Jordan um, dominated the pop charts and were at the forefront of artistic innovation. It it coincided with the era in which uh, songwriters like George and Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, et cetera, et cetera, were creating the the body of work we now know as the Great American Songbook. And Pleasance was very attuned to what was going on in the pop market and the jazz uh, scene. I think he was a little behind the times, as you would expect from a classical critic who was in his 40s at the time. But nonetheless, he recognized that jazz had not only become this incredibly popular music, but had also begun to be an art music. And he hasn't even he doesn't even really confront the modernists, the Charlie Parkers and the dizzy Gillespies, and the rise of modern jazz, starting with bebop, and then cool jazz with Miles Davis, and you know modal jazz, and et cetera, et cetera. And he certainly uh, hadn't confronted free jazz, and and rock fusion was far in the future but let's let's hear what he has to say uh, some of the things he has to say about uh, modern music and classical music is a misnomer but it's what's most popularly used these days to refer to the European orchestral tradition it also includes string quartets piano concertos etc it's not always music produced by symphony orchestras but when you say classical music, people know what you mean, unless they're heads of this kind of stuff. And then classical music refers to a specific era, you know, roughly from Haydn uh, to Mozart, sobbing at Beethoven, who then launches the era of romantic music. But let's hear some of Pleasance's bullet points from his opening argument. He says, modern music is not modern and is rarely music. It represents an attempt to perpetuate a European musical tradition whose technical resources are exhausted and which no longer has any cultural validity. That it continues to be composed, performed, and discussed represents self-deception by an element of society which refuses to believe that this is true. The hopelessness of the situation is technically demonstrable and contemporary composers are aware of it. What makes their own situation hopeless is they cannot break with the tradition without renouncing the special status they enjoy as serious composers. That they have this status is the result of a popular superstition that serious music is superior to popular music. There is good music, indifferent music, and bad music, and they all exist in all types of composition. There is more real creative musical talent in the music of Armstrong and Ellington and the songs of Gershwin, Rogers, Kern, and Berlin than in all the serious music composed since 1920. New music which cannot excite the enthusiastic participation of the lay listener has no claim to his sympathy and indulgence. Contrary to popular belief, all the music which survives in the standard repertoire has met this condition in its own time." The evolution of Western music continues in American popular music, which has found its way back to the basic musical elements of melody and rhythm, exploited in an original manner, congenial to the society of which it is the spontaneous musical expression. And it has found the way back to the basic musical nature of the ordinary mortal from whom music derives, by whom and for whom it is produced and without whom it cannot and does not exist. So, wow. Yeah, the dude's just laying it out there blowing this stuff up. And I have to think he was right. I mean, there's certainly an appeal to some of this music. I've learned to enjoy um, some Webern, some Berg. Uh, Schoenberg's a little bit more of a stretch, and Boulez is definitely beyond my ability to appreciate. But one thing I've noticed is that a lot of this kind of music, that the experiments in atonality... Serial music, 12-tone music, that they discovered a lot of tricks that have been used to massive effect in movie soundtracks, things like the soundtrack of Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. Are very dependent on the innovations of modernist of modern, I guess modernist is an apt term. Modernist quote serious music of the early 20th century because it's discordant, it's upsetting, it's frightening. It's a great way to signal that there's a monster uh, hiding under the cupboard, that somebody's on the other side of the shower curtain with a butcher knife. That kind of thing. Nonetheless, very few people are humming. Uh, uh, you know things like the Schoenberg violin concerto and let's go ahead and hear a little bit of it. This is the Schoenberg violin concerto opus 33 as performed by Hilary Hahn on violin with the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra behind her. and that was the schoenberg violin concerto opus 36 performed by Hilary Hahn on violin with the swedish radio symphony behind her a pleasant enough piece but i certainly wouldn't put it on overtake the a train if i was wanting to host a dance party or really just for listening pleasure and so i can definitely see um the point that Pleasance was making. And for me, this dissection of what was going on with serious music at the time really hit home with the projects that that I've been working on with Let It Roll. I, I read this around the same time uh, as, as I've read uh, some books comparing the genres of rock and roll and jazz. And the extent to which those distinctions were somewhat artificial um, in so far as rock and roll was originally seen and rhythm and blues was definitely originally seen as a subset of jazz. Like as late as 1956, Duke Ellington was referring to rock and roll as a subset of jazz and um, the book. So yeah, it was uh, when genres collide by Matt Brennan and he, he had studied, Brennan had studied um, old issues of downbeat uh, and, other jazz magazines, as well as the early rock and roll magazines like Rolling Stone and discussed, sort of analyzed how the critical community had split rock and roll and jazz into separate categories, and that by the time, quote unquote, rock music, which is the terminology rock critics have used to distinguish rock music made after, say, 1965 from the rock and roll that predated it, the confluence of the Beatles, Bob Dylan, the Beach Boys, Rolling Stones, Motown, others leading into Jimi Hendrix, Cream, etc., that was seen as this new art music, um, that that distinction was sort of maintained more by the critics and the business side than the musicians. And as, as we see with the rise of fusion in the late 60s, that musicians like Miles Davis were very attuned to what was going on with the music coming out of the rock world where Miles Davis's Bitches Brew is massively influenced by the innovations of James Brown, Sly Stone, Jimi Hendrix, and many others. And so for me, reading Pleasant's account of what he saw as the downfall of classical music and the rise of jazz was very interesting. It was especially interesting to me because jazz is just about, when he's writing this in 1955, jazz has already begun a process where it's abandoning popular music where, and we discussed on the show several times the way that Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker's innovations in bebop, which came out directly out of the swing context that both of those guys started out in swing bands and had performed popular dance music for years and years before they, they broke and started playing in smaller clubs for sit down listening audiences and I find it just highly ironic that Pleasance is celebrating the triumph of jazz, which has at that point had seemingly squared the circle and become the dominant popular music in America and Europe, and was showing signs of developing into an art music that would challenge classical music. And I think that we definitely saw that, that the work of Miles Davis, John Coltrane, obviously Parker and Gillespie, and you know many, many other artists in that era – compares quite favorably or or kind of stole away the audience that that would have belonged to serious music or classical music 10 or 20 or 30 years before that that the sort of person who was listening to jazz in a serious way in the 1960s is somebody who probably would have been listening to classical music in the 1940s definitely would have been listening to classical music in the 1920s and absolutely in the 1890s would have been uh, paying attention close attention to western symphonic music and i think you know one thing to keep in mind is there's a real demarcation with world war 1 when the european powers basically suicided themselves and abdicated their cultural leadership on the world stage. And America, the United States of America, rises up with this mongrel hybrid music that has is assimilating the uh, contributions of African Americans and by way of those people of the African diaspora, the innovations or the traditions of African music and the incredible study of and mastery of rhythm that had been developed in the sub-Saharan Congo, which we've discussed with Ned Sublet and others. And this deep wellspring of alien music, alien in the sense that it was alien to the Western European tradition, turned out to be this just incredible vein of treasure for popular music starting uh you know with even before the original dixieland jazz band recorded the first jazz records in 1917 you you have uh, ragtime and its influence on pop music you have minstrelsy which was a huge popular uh phenomenon in the in the 19th century not just in the United States, but also in Europe. But nobody ever made any claims that minstrelsy was producing fine art, although it does evolve into the vaudeville tradition, which evolves into the Broadway tradition, which produces people like Jerome Kern and George Gershwin and, um, you know, Yubi Blake as well. There are plenty of African-American pop songwriters in that period, but it's not until Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue that you get the first time when jazz goes for the goblet or the grail as it were and attempts to challenge quote-unquote serious music on its own terms and this is something we discussed with elijah wald in his book how the beatles killed rock and roll this is this process where you have a vibrant popular music that's frequently associated with dance that's used for dancing and it has ambitions to compete with quote-unquote serious music and be appreciated by listeners rather than dancers. And, you know, we see this dynamic go on time and time again where a new genre comes out, it's not taken seriously, it's fun, it's popular, people dance to it, and then people like Gershwin get the idea, huh, there's a lot of interesting things going on musically here, and I'm writing hit songs with it, maybe I could do something a bit more ambitious. And working with Paul Whiteman, you know, debuts this longer piece, Rhapsody in Blue, and makes stakes a claim to be quote unquote serious music for the 20th century. And I have to say, Gershwin has held up, but as Pleasance points out, that works like Rhapsody in Blue and in an American and in Paris in no way matched. The contributions that Gershwin made as a songwriter, that things um, like Porgy and Bess just don't hold up to the very best uh, Gershwin pop songs. Someone to Watch Over Me, Swanee, uh, Somebody Loves Me, It's Wonderful, I Got Rhythm, uh, Fascinating Rhythm, Embraceable You. I mean, so many, such a body of work that he did. That compares very favorable with his quote unquote more serious work. But let's hear a little bit more of the modern music that caused Henry Pleasant so much agony. This is Anton Webern, Sex Bagatellen or Six Bagatelles, Opus 9. And this is um, by Ausbert Longsham. That was Anton bebern's Six Bagatelles, Opus 9, and Longsong means play extremely slow. That's not who recorded it, obviously. And YouTube didn't give me uh, any more information than that, so my apologies to the performers of this Webern piece. That's quite interesting. And I think fairly pleasant to listen to, but um, does have many of the weaknesses that Pleasance uh, marks in his book. Let me let me pull up another discussion point. Um, you know, one thing that that Pleasance really goes after is this mythology that had been firmly established by the early 20th century that there was an ongoing dynamic in the 19th century where, quote unquote, geniuses like Beethoven all the way through Wagner were unrecognized in their initial uh, performances when their great works were, were not popular initially. And Pleasance thoroughly destroys that argument that he points out that even things like stravinsky's rite of spring while it excited literal riots on its debut within weeks it was quite popular and quite well accepted and even though say beethoven's later quartets were not popular uh, upon their debut things like the ninth symphony were and that beethoven was always popular and always had compelling the public attention and that this myth that um, you know, music should be something that the that, that, that music that's contributing to the evolution of the form should be expected to be unpopular initially. And of course, the public's not going to get it. But we critics and we composers, we understand and that the public will catch up. But that's not what happened with uh, people like Schoenberg and Weber and, and Berg and, and Boulay and others. It never became popular. And it wasn't until You know, minimalism comes along in the in the in the 1960s that that symphonic music began to to find its footing uh, in a popular format again. And other composers, you know, uh, have said that it was the Beatles that dragged classical music back to melody. And again, I'm using classical music and serious music willy nilly to mean the same thing. And serious music is also a silly term, but that's how it was referred to by critics in the early 20th century when Pleasance was talking. Let's 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 dip into Pleasance again, and and he talks about um, the dynamic of the critic versus the the composer. He says, here I'll read this whole segment. He said, serious music has moved into the museum, and the critics with it, there to act as curators of the masterpieces and judges of contemporary candidates for admission. In this latter role, they distinguish themselves by an indulgence assumed to be enlightened. The legitimacy of that assumption is doubtful, nor can it be left at that, for the new music, defended or at least tolerated by the contemporary critic, is not even the real music of his time. While he has sought to persuade himself and his readers that serious music is still an art in progress, the generation of which he is a member has produced, in American jazz, a new art music shaped by the intellectual and emotional character of the 20th century society. The reactionary critic in the 19th century opposed the new music of his time, as he had a good right as a critic to do. He did not like it, and he said so, but he knew at least what that new music was. The progressive critic of the present, blissfully preoccupied with the -the will-o'-the-wisp of musical progress accomplished in an intellectual vacuum, has failed to recognize the real real new music of his time when he heard it. The critic has consistently confused inspiration and inclination. As an amateur and connoisseur of European music from Bach to Bartók, he's interested in the continuity of the tradition and in making his own contribution. He has ignored as unworthy any music of different traditional origin. This has prompted him to overestimate wishfully uninspired new music that calls itself serious and to disparage apprehensively new music of less traditional physiognomy, but real inspiration, notably jazz. What he espouses is not so much a music as a concept of music. The notion that only music identified with the European tradition need be taken seriously, and that serious music must somehow be perpetuated. In this respect, he resembles the composer. Like the composer, he cannot abandon the tradition without also forsaking the respect which his identification with it earns for him in the serious music community. And again, the ironies are just piling up because… This reminds me of nothing so much as Stanley Crouch and Wynton Marsalis in the 1990s on the Ken Burns History of Jazz series that aired on PBS at the time, where they uh, have kind of spun all the way around. I mean, Pleasance is describing what happened to classical music when it lost touch with its audience. And many people would argue, think successfully, that jazz lost touch with its audience first when it conceded the dance floor, when... Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie uh, made music that was ideal for sit-down clubs in uh, central Manhattan and let Louis Jordan have the dance force to himself. And Louis Jordan came out of the jazz tradition every bit as much as Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, he was, as we've documented on the show many times, he was playing with swing and jazz orchestras um, right next to, to Ella Fitzgerald and Chick Webb's orchestra, which was one of the great swing bands of its time. And so, you know, the idea that Charlie Parker has some claim on jazz that Louis Jordan did not, to me, is specious. But nonetheless, Charlie Parker, because he had the backing of critics and writers for people like Downbeat, he did walk away with the the rights to the title, the, the genre title of jazz, whereas Louis Jordan was shunted off into something new called rhythm and blues, and later rapidly evolved into rock and roll. Anyway, Parker and Gillespie give up the dance floor to Louis Jordan. What Louis Jordan is doing is suddenly no longer jazz, even though uh, I think Chick Webb would have would have regarded it as jazz, and Duke Ellington regarded it as jazz as late as 1956. But then the next steps come along, and people like you know Miles Davis, and especially John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman, an innovation of free jazz. Really alienated the uh, the listening public. Ironically, their influence, the influence of Ornette Coleman in particular, becomes a dominant influence on the popular art music of the 1960s in the form of Cream and the Jimi Hendrix Experience and the MC5 and the Stooges, who were all avid free jazz listeners who avidly swiped their techniques, just used different technology instead of making crazy noise with saxophones and the small acoustic band combos that uh, you know dominated the 1940s and 1950s, they had grabbed guitars and Marshall Stacks and Fender amplifiers and were making this entirely new technological sound. And that's been one of the other premises of this show that I've discovered as we've gone through it is that the early adapters of new technology almost always get a big jump in the popular imagination and at, uh, at the sales counter or the streaming counter uh, on people who are, are using older techniques. And it's also interesting. This is something I want to research further, but there was a point at which Western symphonic music almost adapted the saxophone. And there were several pieces written for the saxophone, but because of f- some political differences, because of the origin of the saxophone and the Germans didn't, you know, accept it or vice versa. Again, I need to do the reading. But symphonic music ended up rejecting the saxophone, leaving the field wide open because the saxophone was clearly the dominant musical instrument innovation of the late 19th century that had this massive impact and goes on to become the instrument of the first half of the 20th century all the way up through the 1960s. I mean, John Coltrane, to me, the Beethoven uh, of America, if there is one was a sax guy. Charlie Parker was a sax guy. Sonny Rollins was a sax guy. And then, but you rapidly see the saxophone replaced by the electric guitar and jazz rejected the electric guitar. So jazz is about to do the things that Henry Pleasants is decrying the serious music tradition for. But let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I'll keep channeling the spirit of the late Henry Pleasants.
0: Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And we're back, and I want to quote a little bit about what Pleasance had to say about George Gershwin. And I think uh, Elijah Wald, I I don't know if Wald has read uh, Pleasance or not, but I think he would agree with Pleasance Pretty astute assessment of the work of George Gershwin. He says, only one composer since the First World War has achieved such popularity, has been so admired, applauded, and loved. And that was George Gershwin. And he alone, of all the composers mentioned thus far, was identified primarily with American popular music and jazz. He originated as a pop composer, grew up as a popular composer, and died a pop composer. A certain naive humility before the intellectual aura of, quote, serious music and an awareness of technical limitations caused him to underestimate his own gifts and to overestimate the quality of the gifts of composers like Stravinsky, Ravel, and Schoenberg. Thus, he expired to write, quote, serious music. Of his actual excursions in the, quote, serious field, it would probably be most accurate to say that his talent was big enough to survive them. Certainly, there's nothing in The Rhapsody in Blue or in American in Paris to compare to simple, spontaneous, creative genius in The Man I Love or Embraceable You. In all of musical history, there's probably no more touching evidence of an upside-down state of cultural affairs than the spectacle of George Gershwin going to Schoenberg for composition lessons. Schoenberg is reported to have suggested, in view of their relative earning power, that the role should be reversed. Probably the suggestion was more rueful than sincere. But I think Pleasance uh, you know, nailed it pretty well, that the work Gershwin's most remembered for is his pop songs. And i mean Rhapsody and blue obviously has had a life and an impact but nothing to compare um to the impact that gershwin's pop songs had but i just find it fascinating that that jazz is about to go on the same cycle where it's going to innovate so rapidly and it's also interesting that the time compression uh has happened so fast and you see it again and again in genres where rock music goes through the same thing even faster than jazz did and rock music abdicates the dance floor by 1967 or begins to abdicate the dance floor with the production of Sgt. peppers as elijah wald documented his book how the beatles killed rock and roll even a band like the beatles that had grown up playing cover songs for people to dance to have then evolved into producing quote unquote art music that was designed for serious music fans to sit down and listen to. And it, it succeeded. I mean, everybody listened to it. Jazz, uh, critics listened to it. Jazz musicians listened to it. Um, John McLaughlin, the, the great jazz fusion guitarist was a, a huge fan of the Beatles and, and his work with Miles Davis and solo, uh, you know, was very influenced by Sergeant Peppers, but it's, you know, this process. And that began, you know, that abdication leaves a vacuum. And it was also a technological thing, but that's where disco comes up. And disco starts, not as we think of disco music, but disco meaning music played on records to be danced to in clubs, had begun superseding live bands as early as 64 or 65. And and groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones would come off tour, go home to London and hang out in discos listening to records rather than going to see live bands play. Sometimes they would go see live bands, but for their nightly going out on the town, picking up girls, dancing to music, it was music played on records. And for a while it was their own music. The Stones especially were a dance band all the way into the early 70s. But by The later 60s, groups like the Beatles and the Moody Blues and Yes, et cetera, et cetera, and King Crimson, I mean, nobody's dancing to King Crimson. And that leaves – that left this wide open field for people like Francis Grasso, who was one of the first DJs in New York to master making new music – with old records, by segueing one record into the next, by extending the cool parts of a record, by playing two copies on turntables and switching back and forth and syncing the beats. And this evolves into disco at places like The Loft, where DJs like David Mancuso uh, continue to build on that. And people start recording music designed to be played in these discos. And by the late 70s, it's a whole thing, and it's undeniable, and it's the popular dominant music form superseding rock uh clearly by that point and you know co-evolving with hip-hop which then becomes the next dominant music form anyway so this this technological uh compression of time continues to accelerate where it took the quote-unquote serious or european musical tradition a full century of innovations and ideas from beethoven through wagner Continuing through Debussy and and Stravinsky and others into the early 20th century, at least up to World War One. I. I mean, something like Stravinsky with right of Spring* before World War One was definitely had his thumb on the musical pulse of his time and was drawing crowds and creating excitement in a way that his heirs, something like Boulez, never did. I mean, and. You just don't hear people talking about or listening to Boulet, who was this incredibly dominant composer and um, uh, conductor in the 1950s and 1960s when Pleasance was writing this book. And so uh, it's just fascinating to me the way these things intertwine, and, and that the point I was getting to before this last uh, disjunctive blah, blah, was that. Went Marsalis and Stanley Crouch in the 1990s are already in the museum. They have taken jazz to Lincoln Center. They have written off free jazz. They've written off jazz fusion as if it never happened. They ignored the influence. You know, that one of Stanley Crouch's arguments was that, look, this stuff didn't last. It didn't influence anybody. And he was able to say that because his definition of anybody was people that had been welcomed into the jazz world uh, that was you know, gate kept by people like himself and Went Marsalis. And so if it was fusion or free influenced, they rejected it and and, you know, uh, wrote wrote people out of the histories and, and definitely kept them out of the funding. Meanwhile ignoring this massive impact that free jazz had on hard rock and roll in the late 60s, that fusion jazz had on in particular, electronic dance music, but also hip hop in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I mean, that's one thing about the Techno Roll study uh, series that we did was it was amazing how often jazz fusion players became uh, techno producers, or people who had come up under, you know, listening primarily to jazz fusion became players in the hip-hop scene and you see it in the native tongues uh, groups of hip-hop etc etc so let's take another break and hear a little bit more of this modernist music that henry pleasance was so annoyed by and this is alban berg ver music from lulu act one And that was Alban Berg's Verwandlung's Music from Lulu, Act One. And let's get back to Henry Pleasance. And this is another diatribe that I found quite enjoyable. He says that the art of music has for the past 50 years, which would be from 1905 to 1955 at the time of his writing, been experienced in a period of evolutionary crisis as accepted by composers, critics, and everyone else seriously concerned. The area of general agreement extends even to common recognition of the gap between composer and audience and to the identification of tonal harmony as a decisive point of technical exhaustion and breakdown. If there is general agreement about the existence of a crisis, however, and a good deal of unanimity in the diagnosis, there is no similar consensus in the appraisal of its significance or in the recommendations of a means to achieve its resolution." The 12-tonists feel the answer to the crisis of harmony is systematized atonality. Schoenberg, Berg, Webern, and many others whose names are less familiar to laymen, have taken this conclusion as a point of departure. They assume, not without some logic, that a musical art that has been growing less and less tonal for more than a century of evolution must certainly have an atonal destination. If this is the direction in which music has been headed for so long, they argue, then it must also be the direction in which it is fated to continue." And then Pleasance talks later in the book about how rhythm becomes uh, this missed opportunity for innovation in serious music. And rhythm is exactly what African American music brought to the table um, first with the switch from two four to four four time. Actually, first with the 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 innovation of two four time as as a big dance. Music, the original 1920s tuba driven music and two four time, the beginnings of Kansas City Swing, et cetera, was an innovation. You didn't see two four time, danceable two four time, as a feature of, of Western classical music. In fact, you know, even though there's quite a bit of rhythmic innovation going on in, in Western or European music, it's nothing compared to the danceability of African-American music. And by the time you get into 4-4 jazz and swing and then rhythm and blues and then rock and roll, uh, obviously there was massive room for innovation. And and I don't even know, know if you'd call it innovation with the work of Ned Sublet showing that, the African tradition, the sub-Saharan African rhythmic tradition was so advanced and so complicated that what, what they were doing in the Congo with drum orchestras and the study of rhythm was comparable to what Bach accomplished with the well-tempered clavier and, and, and other ideas, you know, of, of harmony and melody, primarily harmony. And so, you know, the Opportunity is right in front of them. That rhythm and these infusions from other cultures is the obvious path to go down. And you know, even the Czech composer Dvorak had 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 seen that and uh, heard that. And when he visited America and, and wrote works uh, influenced by American folk music, Native American music, and, and African American music primarily, he said, "This this is the stuff. This is this is the music that's." distinguishes American music from, from other musics. And, and this is the promising road, but he wasn't heard and he didn't even follow that direction necessarily. I mean, and and certainly I don't think anyone imagined that they could just pass the baton to Duke Ellington and throw in the towel, but that's effectively what happened. Duke Ellington, I would say is much more listened to today and has had much more influence on uh, the music of the 21st century than Schoenberg, Weber and Berg and Boulez put together. And it's just, um, uh, you know, it's 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 been pretty one-sided on that, and and I have to take my hat off to Pleasance for diagnosing that. But let's go ahead and hear our last piece, and this is Boulet Le Morteau sans maître, the borough de solitude, and apologies for my abysmal French. And that was Les Marteau Sens Maitre, The Masterless Hammer by Boulet. And again, serial music, atonal, the definition of everything that Henry Pleasant's, uh is diatribing against in his book, The Agony of Modern Music. And let's close with um, some of his final thoughts on the uh, subject. And he says... Those who think of modern music as the final chapter in the long decadence of European culture conveniently date the downward curve from Beethoven on. Beethoven established the composer as a poet and philosopher and furrowed the brow of both listener and performer. From Beethoven's time dates the sanctity of the composition, the introduction of reverence into the concert hall and the opera house, and the promotion of the performer to the role of an interpreter of the composer's revelations. But if one thinks of music in terms of spontaneous invention by practicing musicians, then it would seem more accurate to date decadence from the time when composers began writing out the inner voices of their harmonies, composing accompaniments and embellishments and restricting solo improvisation to cadenzas signaled by a 6-4 chord whose purpose was to announce to the audience that from here on, the soloist was on his own. From this point of view, the great evolutionary accomplishment of jazz appears to be the elimination of the composer. Just how far serious music stands from this course of evolution can be seen in the fact that while jazz is removing the composer as an obstacle between musician and audience, the composer of modern music seeks to remove the musician as an obstacle between his own inspiration and his listener. There is no absolute elimination, of course, of either composer or practicing musician. In jazz, there is a germinal idea, a basic melody, which somebody has to invent. And serious music, if it is to be heard, has to be played. But in jazz, the composer is flattered to have his original idea serve as a takeoff point for the imaginative excursions of fellow practicing musicians, just as Vivaldi was doubtless flattered to be plagiarized and embellished by Bach. The contemporary composer of serious music, on the other hand, writes purposely in such a way as to reduce the performer's intellectual and inventive contribution to a minimum. Thus, the jazz accomplishment is simply defined. It has taken music away from the composers and given it back to musicians and their public. And that's a worthy goal that was accomplished by jazz for a while, but as I've discussed jazz uh gave away the torch as it were to rock which then gave away the torch to uh electronic dance music and hip-hop and as we've seen in and say uh articles about the 50th anniversary of hip hop hip-hop seems to now be a decadent form and edm i think has gone down the same road and we're all waiting to see if there's going to be another form that takes its place as innovations i don't know maybe there's somebody playing with ai and an original way, not just Paul McCartney making himself sound younger and trying to do a duet from Beyond the Grave with John Lennon, but somebody doing something really crazy that could only be done with artificial intelligence, some kid who's uh, got his hands on these tools and is making something really wild. I, I hope so, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, that's Let It Roll for today, and the book has been The Agony of Modern Music, and thanks to the spirit of Henry Pleasance, hopefully we haven't disturbed his rest.
1: Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, we continue the Let Motown Roll series with a recast of Nate's 2020 interview with Susan Whiteall author of Women of Motown and Oral History. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.